Hello everyone and welcome to Negotiating Ideas, a podcast about political thought on democracy, pluralism and peace. This is Omar Sadr and I am a senior research scholar at the University of Pittsburgh's Center for Governance and Markets. It has been a while that political scientists and analysts talk about crisis of democratic polities. This crisis entails lack of good performance and governance, democratic backsliding, rise of authoritarianism and populism. How shall we make sense of this crisis and how shall we address it? My guest in this episode is someone who argues that democracies should be open to learn from other polities, including the authoritarians, in order to improve the quality of governance. Issues related to trust, meritocracy, accountability, investing in human capital and infrastructure and safety nets are important. Charles Dunst is the author of Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strong Man. He is the Deputy Director of Research at the Asia Group and an Adjunct Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. An erstwhile foreign correspondent, he has written for outlets including New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Telegraph, and Foreign Policy. Welcome, Charles Dunst, uh, to Negotiating Ideas podcast. I really enjoyed reading your book, um, and it's a pleasure to have you here in this episode, um, providing um, me and the audience an opportunity to discuss more uh, further your book, um, which is titled Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of Strong Men. Um, so the title tells us uh, it's quite uh, clear what uh, what you uh, discuss in the book, but I would love to also give you this opportunity to, uh, to tell the audience uh, what do you discuss in the book? What are the key findings? Well, perfect. And, and thank you for having me on. I, I appreciate it. Basically, my book aims to do what I think far too few autocracy-focused books have have done, which is to offer a tangible roadmap for combating autocracy and actually making democracy work better. I think there's a lot of literature about what's gone wrong. There's a lot of literature lamenting the problems, whether that's in the United States, whether that's in Europe, whether that's in places like the Philippines, or people over the last few years saying, well, look at how democracy is not working there and how it's producing populists and whatnot, populist, uh, you know, liberal leaders, what I wanted to do was take a much more positive approach and think about, well, how can democracies work better? How can we provide good governance to actually make sure that people in democracies are not voting for these liberal figures to make sure that people feel like the system is working well enough, that they're not tempted by the Victor Orbans of the world, or, or to some extent, the Donald Trumps of the world. Uh, and that's kind of impulse one. And secondarily, the argument is, well, democracies, kind of the long established democracies like the United States, like the United Kingdom, Japan, South Korea, if they are performing better on their own merits, people around the developing world are more likely to look at democracy as a model for them in the future. I mean, I think an example I use extensively is Vietnam. I mean, certainly the part of the world I know best is probably Southeast Asia. And, you know, you walk or talk to Vietnamese policymakers today or the Vietnamese intelligentsia, they're not thinking, you know, how can we become a democracy? They're looking at the United States and say, look at January 6th, that's chaos. Or look at the UK, look at three prime ministers in three months. They're more so thinking, well, how can we kind of model Singapore? Mm -hmm. Or how, to some extent, can we model China's previous double-digit growth rates? So I wanted to make an argument for saying, well, not only does democracy need to work better at home to keep democracy where it already exists, but it needs to work better at home so more people abroad can look to us in the future. And maybe, maybe a country like Vietnam might democratize in some way in 50, 60 years. 
but I think it's hard to imagine that happening if we're not serving as a sure. model. Uh, let's <clears throat> let me give you a bit of history and what we talk at this moment about the crisis of democracy in the West and in most of the free world. But I think this is not something new. <clears throat> For example, back in 1973, uh, a popular report, which is called The Crisis of Democracy, it was published by a trilateral commission, um, jointly by scholars from United States, Western Europe, Japan, amongst whom the well-known uh, uh, Huntington was there. And they also realized this. It's at the heart of Cold War 1973. Um, some of the key um, uh, points that they make are still relevant in our time. For example, they, they highlight how, uh, for example, democracy might be threatened by steaming social evolution or political dynamics of their own societies. It's not something dangerous from, mm -hmm. from outside, but from our own side or polarized ethnic groups or identity politics, let's say. Um, so, so what shall we uh, uh, understand from this? Are we still stuck in a story or democracies are on constant uh, phases of crisis that we are not able to tackle mm -hmm. them or overcome them? I think democracy by nature is incredibly messy. And I think this notion that democracies will be kind of clean and easy is mistaken. So I think to some extent there is a little bit of an ongoing crisis with the argument being that when you embrace that crisis, you embrace that tumult, you have more open societies that result in better literature and better technical innovations and all that. But I think the, the point being made by the kind of Cold War era report much of it still stands. I mean, I think there was lots of discussion in 2016, obviously, in 2017, kind of postmortems of, well, how did Russian intervention in the 2016 elections result in Donald Trump? Or how did Russian intervention result in the Brexit vote, which are kind of held up as these two populist liberal votes? And I think that it's a little bit of scapegoating and saying, well, look, look at the Russians did to our open societies. Whereas in reality, I think those votes were actually a reflection of System, kind of dis, not disdain, but popular discontent and frustration with the liberal democratic system as it's operating, which is a long way of saying that I agree. I agree with the report's <laughs> notion that many of these uh, kind of challenges to democracy are mostly internal. I mean, as much as certainly maybe Chinese, um, the Chinese government's uh, kind of in misinformation efforts or disinformation efforts, same thing with Russia, it plays a role, but it only plays a role because they're finding divided societies already. And the one thing I would say that I think is different from the Cold War era is in the 70s, in the maybe even the 60s, really, from the 50s, 60s through the 70s, the autocracies then were not really like the autocracies mm -hmm. today in this, from, for the most part, where what I think of as kind of a, a constant autocracy or not a constant autocracy, but you're, in the 60s and 70s, many of the autocracies were basically ones emerging from colonialism yeah. with leaders who were able to wield nationalism and saying, well, you know, I'm going to come in and control the whole state and fix everything. And of course, that was the model for, for much of Africa, I think parts of Southeast Asia and, and, and beyond. Whereas today, the authoritarian threat is from is yeah. internal. It's that a country or someone will get elected freely and fairly like Viktor Orban did and kind of shift the system in an illiberal way. I think that's one very key difference is clearly it's been demonstrated that once you already have a democracy, it doesn't mean democracy can't okay. wither. 
Whereas I think that is a misperception from the Soviet era that there was this notion of, well, once you democratize, there's no going back. Or I think it's very clear now that you can, you can go back. I think the secondary point I would make about the difference between the Soviet era is by the late 1970s, early 1980s, I think it was becoming apparent across the developing world that the Soviet system wasn't working particularly well, and it lost its legitimacy. I mean, it lost the veneer of attractiveness, where I think more and more people across the the developing world, think, particularly thinking Southeast Asia, Latin America, would be saying, well, actually, we're going to need some form of capitalism to get rich and to deliver for our people and ultimately for our governments to stay in power. And that is the Vietnam story, of course, that's the China story. And I think that's the big difference today, where you have autocracies that people seem to think work. You know, people go to the UAE, people go to Singapore, people go to parts of China and think, wow, this system works so much better than my own system. And that's a new mm. challenge. Now, people were not going to Moscow in 1982 and returning to, to Minneapolis and saying, well, I'm going to move to Russia, Russia or move to the Soviet Union. Soviet yeah. Union's great. Uh, and that's a that's just a very different framing of the challenge, I think, than, than in previous yeah, yeah, years. Yeah. That true. I, 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 this recalls me. I mean, the persistence of the challenge, but it's still on the face of it that democracy still exists and continues to uh, persist. Um, I think it's also reflected in the very recent report of 2023 of VDAM. Uh, I'm sure you have come across that report, which is titled "Defines in the Face of Autocratization," which means, of course, autocratization is a challenge. But in this report, uh, interestingly, it's highlighted that um, at least the recent year, this year, um, there were more cases of democracies, which has been, I mean, they were derailed at some moment, but they shifted back towards democratization. Mm -hmm. And that included South Korea, Maldives, Moldova, uh, um, El Salvador, I suppose, or Ecuador, my, my apologies. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, this is interesting. But, I mean, we had the, this wave of um, backsliding, but at least recent report shows there are positive signs also that there are, for example, mass protests in, in South Korea or, for example, in Iran, the women protests, uh, which are, I mean, very, I mean, strong scenarios that democracies can still survive and do better deliver. And it's still an attractive political system. So how do you say, how do you match your findings with the recent report of VDAM, which I just I think there's actually a lot of overlap and because I am ultimately optimistic. I mean, I think I, I tried to write a book that was forward looking and thinking about, well, how can we actually fix things? And, I, and many of the reviews, the comments have been, well, maybe he's too optimistic. Or I think I was talking to when I was in London recently, I was talking to Martin Wolf, who wrote his crisis of democratic capitalism book at the same time. And he said, you know, as you get older, you become more pessimistic because Martin's in his early 70s. And he was thinking, you know, you're more optimistic than I am. And that comes with youth. And I think it's true, though, because the book was published in February 2023, which is coming off of 2022, which, as you're saying, was a very bad year for autocracies. Clearly, it was a bad year for Russia. Putin carried out this ill, ill-advised invasion with the argument being that, well, he probably didn't understand how bad the war was going to go precisely because he is an authoritarian system where the channels of open discussion are limited, where his advisors are either scared to tell him the truth or so incompetent that they don't actually have access to the truth. I think 2022 was not a very good year for China either. I think there was some very impulsive foreign policy making. Obviously, there was impulsive domestic policy making on things like zero COVID. And not only were kind of the autocrats performing poorly, but there were some bright spots for democracy and kind of some um, some surprising ones where so far Ferdinand Marcos Jr. in the Philippines has 
you know, he won an election. Most of, much of the Western media coverage was critical and saying, you know, well, he's been out there. He used disinformation. There was all the social media stuff. Uh, people really like him, and he seems to be adhering to democratic principles, deepening ties with the United States. Certainly, the Philippines is not a perfect democracy, but that was, I think, a, a marked improvement from Duterte, obviously. And something similar in Malaysia happened as well, where Malaysia was able to kind of break this political deadlock with an election that, you know, it's a very complicated, it's a currently very complicated coalition, but they're governing democratically. They're trying to undo the monopolies and the corruption of the previous government. And those are two surprising bright spots in a region, Southeast Asia, where there's just not that much democracy. I mean, I think of, of those 10 countries, probably th- to the 10 ASEAN countries, I think probably three yeah. of them are democracy. That includes Malaysia and the Philippines. So I think my book actually overlaps quite nicely with many of the VDEM results of basically saying democracy, when it works, can be on the forefront, but I would say, or can be very successful. But clearly my my concern at the moment is, well, what happens if the Malaysian government doesn't mm. deliver? Or what happens if the Filipino government doesn't mm. deliver? Uh, I think that could very easily produce a populist backlash and you could get, you know, someone like Duterte or in the Philippines, I think there, or sorry, Malaysia, I think there's concern that you get uh, kind of a liberal Islamist government uh, and something similar is, you know, what are, what's Indonesia's election going to look like in 2024? What are the Thai elections going to look like in three weeks? Um, So I think there are some bright spots, but clearly, you know, I would think Israel's not a particularly good place. I think it remains unclear to me. I mean, I would be optimistic and say the U.S. is in a pretty good place, but certainly, you know, 2024 elections, kind of who knows, I think you currently, you know, President, former President Trump is still the right. front runner in that in the uh, in the Republican nomination. So I do think there is an overlap between the optimism of my book and the optimism of VDEM. But I think both of the both my book and VDEM would argue, would caution against kind of sitting back. They would caution against kind of thinking, well, we already well, we've, we've won. Let's move on. I think both of the both VDEM and my book would argue, no, we actually need action to cement the True. gains. Of 2022. Yeah. I would love to discuss Trump also in a while, but uh, coming to your last point sure. that we have to be cautious and take certain steps. So I think the crux of your book is that you are saying there are certain things in terms of governance and performance that democracies are not doing well. And that is with respect to accountability, trust, uh, meritocracy, uh, education, um, human capital, um, question of um, immigration. So um, you you nicely put all, each of these and uh, thematic wise in chapters and discuss them in detail and provide, for example, uh, uh, alternative models. For example, when you talk about merits, you you speak about uh, Singapore. When you talk about trust, you talk about Vietnam, uh, and 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 same. So uh, tell us about uh, some of these governance issues. Uh, why democracies are not performing well? Of course, this is a very generic question, and sure. I, I remember in nineties the the key debate of Britain Woods institutions like IMF was that good governance is related to public administration Mm -hmm. plus transparency and transparency is related to democracy. So inherently, the thesis was that you can't achieve good governance until and unless you don't have democracy. Now, you're suggesting alternative ways that democracies should learn lessons not from their own self, but from autocracies like there are lessons to, to learn from Singapore or Vietnam or China. How is that? Sure. I mean, I think clearly, let me state state first off, I would not live in an authoritarian country. I would not trade being American for anything. I would not, you know, I think my British friends, I would say, well, it's better to be British than be Singaporean, even if you feel like the Singaporean state works. And that's my own 
kind of preference for liberty over maybe a super effective governance. But the point of the book is basically to push back, I think, on that 1990s notion of, well, you can only have good governance if you are a democracy because you need transparency, you need, you know, checks through the through voting to have effective governance. And I think it's actually very clear that from Singapore, from some of the Gulf states, that you can actually have reasonably effective governance without democracy. Uh, and certainly that's because there is some transparency. I mean, I think Singapore is, transpa- is transparent-ish in terms of some of its governance, particularly in terms of merito- meritocratic staffing. Uh, and certainly the UAE is not as transparent, but I think one of the examples I, I mentioned in the accountability chapter was the UAE did a, a review of all the, of all the uh, some, I forget which subset, but basically of 600 to 700 health clinics and then published which ones were the best and which ones were the worst. Uh, and that was quite transparent and that is quite accountable. And I think the argument of the book is, well, we need to actually find solutions everywhere where, you know, for the United States, do I think Denmark can give us some inspiration for fixing our social safety net? Yes. Do I think Denmark's the exact model? No. Do I think Singapore is the exact model for the United States to have a better meritocracy? No. But do I think Singapore probably staffs its foreign service better than ours? Probably. I mean, I think there it is a more meritocratic system. There is more targeted money being spent on low-income households for education to make sure you're kind of evening the playing field. So clearly, there are some, I mean, it's a handful of these few autocracies that have demonstrated that you can have good governance, I mean, quote, quote, unquote, good governance without democracy and without these kind of checks and balances that I think many scholars in the 90s and even 2000s thought were linked. And that is really the challenge for me at the moment when you think about democracy around the world. Well, how do we make the case for democracy if there are these autocracies that seem to be providing better? And I there's an anecdote that I'll kind of share quickly where I recently did a book event maybe two months ago in London that 100 people in the room, mostly MP staffers, mostly Tory MP staffers. And I say, you know, how many of you have lived in or how many of you have traveled to Singapore, uh, Saudi Arabia, Shenzhen, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, one of these really super effective authoritarian countries? You know, half the crowd raises their hands. And I say, how many of you thought those cities worked better than where you live now? whether that's London, Washington, Paris, same 50 people raised their hand. And that's really not a problem that would have arisen 40 years ago, where if you went to Moscow 30, 40 years ago, you were not returning back to New York or Paris or London and saying, oh, that, that's working better than yeah. my system. Uh, so clearly, there is some form of effective governance that can be, can be achieved without liberty. Uh, so that is that is my concern. And in terms of the roadmap I laid out, it was meritocracy, it was accountability, it was trust, it was long-term planning, reforming the social safety net, human capital investments, infrastructure and immigration. Uh, and you know, every country I think can pick and choose some of these solutions. And certainly folks who read the book are not going to agree with every every solution. I think that's that's kind of obvious. But the, the argument was, you know, for South Korea, maybe the need is a little different than the United States, an X, Y, and Z issue, but it's basically just trying to give some inspiration for policymakers looking for for a broad suite of ideas, essentially. So basically, you are uh, challenging also the American exceptionalism that uh, uh, as the core of United States identity, where um, uh, liberal democracy is unique here. The foundational of this country is based on liberal values. But here you're coming and saying, well, we have other best models, probably. They they might function well in certain sense compared to the United States, and we should be open up um, and, and um, look for, for all of them. 
it's interesting. I mean, I think the framing, I broadly agree with that in the sense of, yes, the United States and Britain and Germany, all of these democracies, you do need to look elsewhere for solutions at times. Not every solution is going to come internally, but it is funny. I mean, I, and I get, I get criticized for saying this in the book a little bit, but I actually, I do think America is exceptional. And maybe that's just me as an American being, you know, very optimistic and, and patriotic, I guess. But just because if I believe America is unique in the way the country was founded, founded as, if not a properly multi-ethnic society, that's kind of what the country became in a way that maybe Canada also, but it's very different from you know, the United Kingdom where anyone can be British, but not anyone can be English, where there is that kind of racial ethnic identity that the United States doesn't have. Even if I believe that to be true, which I do. I don't think that's a reason to say, well, the United States can't learn from you know South Korea's investment in mm-hmm. infrastructure or Japan's focus on building up human mm-hmm. capital uh, or Singapore's meritocratic government staffing. Just because I do think America has been exceptional in its foundation and kind of its ability as a great power to, I mean, not always, but ideally shape the world positively, yeah. that doesn't mean we can't learn from sure. other people. It doesn't mean we can't learn from friends sure. and partners. Like even you know, even like Singapore at times. Um, sure. Uh, so now, uh, also let me ask you: how, What is the root cause of this problem? Is it because scholars and political science discuss whether the crisis that we are facing is as um, what you highlight is as a crisis of governance? But some others may say it's a crisis of democracy itself. And then some other philosophers also talk about Christ of liberalism, which is the foundational basis mm. of the uh, our democracies. Uh, so, for example, if I pick um, your first chapter, which is on meritocracy, and you provide example of Singapore's education system, uh, how it provides equal opportunity for everyone, and it's based on meritocracy, and uh, kids are, are are trained well uh, based on certain models, right? Uh, of course, they're, they're, it is similar to the United States in terms of liberal arts and all, but... Um, but what some other scholars like Patrick Denin, which is a prominent post-liberal scholar, he when he talks also about the crisis of education, he exactly points the same issues that you highlight. How, for example, Ivy League institutions, for example, in the United States has, has, has been completely a privilege of exclusive group. Uh, and that's not egalitarian. Um, so, as uh, I mean, masses of people in the United States do not have access to good quality education. And, and it's uh, in certain areas, I mean, everywhere in the United States, it's it's linked with property tax, and if you're living in a in a worse locality mm-hmm. in a neighborhood, you do not have access to good education. So, I mean, he says that this is this problem. Patrick Dean says this problem comes from liberalism, um, and the, which undermines uh, meritocracy, which undermines the ethos of. Um, uh, liberal arts education itself, which is, I mean, mm-hmm. should be accessible to everyone. Do you agree that this this issue is rooted in ideology of liberalism, or no? It is something which is done we're doing with governance functioning only. No, I, I think it's about governance. I mean, I I certainly would consider myself a, a liberal politically. I mean, small l liberal, obviously, but politically and kind of ideologically. But my broad framing here is, well, what's going wrong? Why is the United States not meritocratic? And why is our education system not functional? Why, why, why? My answer is I do think it's rooted not so much in ideology in terms of liberalism. I think it's rooted in Mm over-optimism, where I kind of think since the 1990s, following the Cold War, you know, when you follow this end of history framing, and if the logical kind of end, the logical end point of the end of history as well, democracy is one. 
So maybe we don't have to work as hard to preserve it. Or maybe we don't have to work as hard to make society function super well. If there's no alternative, what is the impetus for making the system work so exceptionally? And I think it, it set the stage for reforms that were very short-sighted or removing oversight in, from uh, you know, financial institutions, basically for the gain of a small subset of people. And I don't think that's rooted in ideology. I think it was them just basically saying, well, if there's no alternative to democracy, why don't we make democracy work in our small interests rather than in the big interests? And that to me is not a crisis of, of liberalism. I mean, clearly, you know, Denmark is a liberal society and Denmark is a very functional society. And there are more than a few countries across Europe. And I would say Australia probably fits that model as well. Taiwan certainly fits that model. And those are liberal societies that work. There's nothing inimical to me uh, in There's nothing inimical in the connection between liberalism and functional governance. I do think there is a disconnect between over-optimism and functional Mm -hmm. governance, where I think there just was this notion of things have already been working, we've already won, so we don't have to continue continuously fix things. We only have to fix things in times of crisis. Well, a bridge breaks, we'll fix the bridge. But no one thinks, well... What's the bridge going to look like in 40 years? How are we going to make sure our kids are prepared for you know, what, whatever, whatever the gig economy, AI-fueled economy looks like in 30 years? How do we make sure they're prepared for that? So I don't think it's about ideology in the sense that you know, it's not about liberalism. It's not about illiberalism. I think it's just about optimism and over-optimism undermining policymakers' ability to actually see the Mm. problems, where if you're so optimistic and you think you've won, you're kind of high on victory, you're not going to be able to look around and see the holes and see the problems, which is, I think, why there has, over the last 20, 30 years, emerged much more scholarship on actually the problems, because I think it became apparent late 2000s around the financial crisis that the system was not working as well as everyone thought it was. And there's no coincidence that around 2008 was the same time Chinese policymakers began thinking, well, this Western model that we have learned Mm. from to build build up our own economy, maybe it's not all that. And maybe we need our own system. And maybe we need to actually spread that system a little bit abroad. Uh, And you can very, there's a very clear link, Mm -hmm. I think, between declining confidence in the liberal kind of liberal governance, the rules-based international order, it's all directly backly, directly rooted to 2008, uh, along with the ascendancy of the models like the Chinese model. So I don't think it's about ideology. I think it's just kind of about options. Sure. But still, when you look at the education system, it's it's not just about quality, but it's also deeply contentious here in the United States. So the ideological divide, the conservatives are mm-hmm. criticizing critical race theory, for example. Um, uh, some other uh, Republicans, for example, the nominee of uh, Senate in Pennsylvania, who was not endorsed by President Trump, Dave Mac- Macronomic, uh, if I pronounce his name uh, correctly, he was saying that Americans are not proud because the, the history, for example, the way it started, it should be rewritten. Um, uh, so uh, how do you see this ideological divide, uh, which is, I mean, it's a deep at the crisis of education system in, in the United States. So again, it's about liberals on one side, the conservatives on the other side. Um, and and you, there's little agreement on, for example, on identity politics, on, on sure. uh, identity of the country, uh, on issues related, for example, uh, fundamental uh, human rights in, 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 in hmm. some cases. So how can we, I mean, America resolve this crisis in the education system? Honestly, 
what I think, I think the crisis is a little overstated in the sense that on many of these issues, there is actually a broad center. Uh, and I think you mostly just have, not fringes, I mean, it's overstated, but you have small, loud subsets of both the left and the right who I think have managed to define to define many of these debates by controlling the airwave, not controlling, I mean, it's overstated, but many of the writers who are getting amplified in the New York Times are being chosen by ideologically aligned editors who I don't think are necessarily always representative of the general public. I mean, certainly, you know, the New York Times, and I'm, I'm picking on the New York Times, but obviously best newspaper in the world, they get more criticism than everyone else. But, you know, I, I, Washington Post, New York Times, whatever, any, any kind of left-leaning American newspaper, the editorial board is clearly not representative of the general public and is clearly overweighted a little bit to the left. So it's a long way of saying that, you know, when you look at issues as contentious as gay marriage or as immigration, it is around 65-70% of Americans say gay marriage is good. Uh, around 65-70% of Americans say immigrants are actually a good thing for U.S. society. But these debates get muddled. They get muddled, and I think that's mostly a reflection of our media, actually, which is something I regret not spending more time on in the book in terms of the explosion of misinformation, disinformation, uh, corporate media, whatever. I do wish I spent a little more time on that because I think many of these debates and many of these <clears throat> contentious issues are a bit manufactured at times where you know, left and right wing media alike benefit from catering to existing prejudices and existing concerns and telling readers or listeners kind of what they want to hear or firing them up because that's something they don't want to hear. So honestly, I think at the kind of town hall level or the local school board level, when people actually get together and debate these things, I think it's often more civil uh, than we kind of seem to think it is on the broad level where, you know, obviously critical race theory is something that's somehow managed to become modern, kind of normal parlance and then most people actually understand what it is. But if you go to, I live in Virginia, if you go to a school board meeting in my district of Virginia, people are not really talking about critical race theory. And even if you go parts of the country that are slightly more ideologically divided than Northern Virginia, I think most of the discussion is, well, how do we make sure our kids are actually learning math? They're learning how to write. They're learning how to read. These ideological issues, I think, become secondary, or I think, honestly, are mostly secondary because despite the media coverage, there is broad American agreement, I would argue, on some of these issues, you know, on the notion of gay marriage, on the notion of immigration. I think what you get into on issues, you know, like critical race theory or all these other things are maybe the products that many of these teachers who are not necessarily from the districts they're serving, maybe a little bit out of touch with the parents. And that's kind of a complicated issue. But I, I'm a big believer in, in civil discourse and having open discussion. And as much as possible, I would urge politicians to speak a little bit more honestly and resist the headlines and think less so about, you know, what, what coverage can I get in CNN versus what coverage can I get from my local newspaper or my loop, my local television station or who, you know, firing up my, my broad voters, not just my little segment, because I do think many of these debates are, are overstated in the media and are not as, not as prevalent as they are made sure. out. So now let's move on to the issue of trust, which is, I think, one of the core crises of our uh, democracies now. And you link the issue of trust with uh, with honesty, with transparency, but also with economic performance. Um, most importantly, with what I mean, lies. For example, our politicians are continuously lying, and of course, that erodes the trust of the public on on the system, uh, and that's why there is. Um, 
demagogues who are coming out of the system, attacking the establishment or, I mean, labeling what is establishment. So, I mean, lie is something which eroots vertical accountability between uh, state and society. So um, what do you say? How, how can we tackle this, the issue of trust, uh, particularly those politicians who are not honest with the public? It's a hard question because, I mean, I, as much as I would like to have a new, a newer kind of crop of politicians who are willing to speak honestly, clearly there are some political incentives to not being honest. But I would say I think there are some optimistic signs, particularly from the younger generation of folks who are running for office, uh, I think mostly on the left, but not exclusively, people are actually committed to their values and are committed to telling the truth. Um, but in terms of trust, I think it's less so about individual politicians and more about performance. Mm. Whereas when I travel around the world, whether that's in you know Memphis, Tennessee, or in Malaysia, and you ask people, well, why don't you trust the government? It's usually about corruption. It's about ineffective governance. It's, well, the bridge broke and no one fixed it, or the politicians are aligning their own, lining their pockets. And there are some basic reforms here that I think would counter that perception. Clearly, I'm a big believer in Congress people should not be allowed to trade stocks, even if it's not technically corrupt, it looks corrupt. And for voters, perception is reality. If they perceive the system to be corrupt, then for all intents and purposes, the system is corrupt and they're going to view it that way and is going to undermine sure. trust. So I think there are some basic things like that that can be fixed to improve trust in governments. But I do think on a longer and a broader level, it is about economic performance mm. where there's no it's no surprise to me that trust in government has declined in the United States and Japan and sure. South Korea at the same time that people are now saying that they are not optimistic about their children's futures, that their children's economic futures, they are not optimistic. It's no shock to me that those two things are linked. Uh, and I, I, I do think it is a little bit about making sure that, you know, sure, GDP numbers are great and GDP growth is great, but GDP growth can obscure the fact that that wealth is not actually reaching all of society and that that wealth is maybe captured in you know, non-product producing kind of institutions like some of these financial institutions, honestly, that, you know, it's not like the, the, the GEs of the world or whatnot that were actually making goods and, you know, hiring manufacturers and all that. And the wealth was actually making its way through society as it used to. But, you know, we think about the big hedge funds, that wealth isn't, it's not productive. It's not productive. It's not fueling communities. Uh, so I, I personally, I think many of the solutions in the book focus on transparency, sure, uh, but also on economic growth. And I think one one example I raised is that polls consistently show that in the United States, United you know, Kingdom, Germany, South Korea, whatever, uh, people actually trust the private sector more than they trust the, the mm. government. And I think that's a, a reality of people thinking, well, they look at Apple or they look at any of these big companies and think, wow, look at how dynamic they are. They are building a new iPhone every year. They're making all these innovative products, whereas our governments look kind of old and sclerotic. The apples of the world have young staffers. Everything's hip and clean and vibrant. Uh, and one of the solutions I've made, uh, suggestions I've offered as well, governments should look to, par to partner with the private sector when they can on sh clearly shared agendas. I mean, this is not saying the government should throw money at a private sector company to do something just because it might look good. But on something like the COVID-19 vaccines, it was a clear demonstration of Operation Warp Speed was essentially a public-private partnership. There's some other examples in Australia of spending a lot of money to build a big road. I'm forgetting which one, but they did it for you know a few hundred million dollars less than expected and faster than expected because they partnered with the private sector. Not only is that good governance, 
but it will allow the government, I think, to leverage that trust of the private sector for its own benefit. So sure, there are some easy solutions here, like transparency, banning stock trading for sitting officials. But I do think the broader issue is economic. And and those PPPs, those public-private partnerships, Mm. can be Mm. effective Mm. alternatives. Mm. But for example, don't you think the case of Biden administration, uh, to a large extent, its policy with respect to tackling inflation has been good. It's steadily declining. Its policy compared to Trump administration with respect to China is much more nuanced and, and I mean, uh, effective. Um, t- Trump was just t- uh, taking one-sided issue of uh, costumes or uh, uh, economic blockage. But uh, Biden administration in terms of, I mean, China, they, they are trying to decouple s- certain issues. Trade, yes, but in certain national security, there are certain issues. So, uh, but also certain acts which Biden administration passed, uh, it, it is slowly recovering um, U.S. economy. But still, when you see public perception, um, that is not, I mean, the trust is not, fully back. Uh, Trump, of course, I mean, within the Republican camp, he is, again, in the pools, quite in the top. So uh, do you still think when even government's policies are devised nuancedly and it's working, probably it takes a bit of time, but but public trust is, I mean, the people are not patient because they want swift uh, outcomes results. So in, in such kind of scenario, what shall we do uh, or politicians shall do? Yeah, it's hard because I think you actually see the polls of the administration and of kind of approval ratings of the president. They were highest, actually, right after he took Mm. office because it was this kind of saying, well, look at how chaotic Trump was January 6th. Biden comes in, calms things down, this kind of legitimacy, you know, effective governance, kind of old veteran who's been there before. People said, great, steady hand at the wheel, awesome. But as you're saying, people do lose patience. And I think there was frustration that things weren't rolled out as fast as possible. But I will say the approval ratings, I think, hovered relatively higher than they are now at the time when the COVID vaccines were rolled out or when the stimulus was rolled out. These things that were easy where it was, you know, you don't have to pay any money. You don't have to go fill out any forms to show up, get your shot or in your mail. Here's, you know, here's a few hundred bucks. And those are very clear projects, big projects, but had a very tangible impact immediately where some of these eminently worthwhile programs, so the CHIPS Act. CHIPS Act is an excellent idea. The average voter probably has not heard of it, and the average voter who maybe has heard of it doesn't really understand how it's going to affect them, because frankly, if you're you know the average citizen, the CHIPS Act is not going to affect you. You are not getting the semiconductor grant. You know, It's going to companies. You're not mm. a company. Or even the Inflation Reduction Act, which had some great stuff in it, clearly is not as directly kind of tangible as some of the COVID era assistance. Uh, I think the child tax credit was a really good example here of, I think you can actually see that the government's approval rating went up when the child tax credit was showing up people's inboxes and they were saying, you know, well, I'm struggling to pay my bills. Here's a few hundred dollars from the government. Wow, that's really great. The government is really actually trying to make the system work. And of course, you know, uh, there was not enough political support in, in, on the Hill to keep that going. But I do think there is some merit, as much as there is merit to these long-term plans, these big projects that need to be conceptualized down the line, there is also some merit to showing your public that you care for them with shorter, shorter-term targeted projects or targeted assistance measures that can clearly serve the public. And I think as much, it, it is mostly a messaging issue at the moment of, well, 
here's this broad China challenge that's leading to the CHIPS Act, it's leading to all this economic action, all this action from the Commerce Department. I think ordinary Americans want to understand, well, how does it matter to me? And that was something I tried to spend a lot of time on at the end of the book, the conclusion, <coughs> excuse me, basically saying, well, why does it matter? Why does it matter that you know the democracies win? Why does it matter that we fend off an, an international order kind of run by China with the argument being that, well, we'll get everything second. We'll get all the technology second, whether that's electric vehicles, whether that's electric vehicle batteries, whether that's semiconductors. And ultimately, if we get them second, we'll probably pay more money for them and we'll make everyone poorer. We'll make the U.S. economy slower, growth rates will slow. And if you know people don't think the economy is serving them now, imagine how much worse they'll feel about the government if the economy actually isn't even growing at a particularly high level at all. So that really is kind of how I think about it, where... There is no kind of snap your fingers, easy solution to making people trust the government again. But I think there is, it's both short-term and long-term projects. It is things, being able to respond to a crisis more effectively than COVID. And of course, you know, the initial response was, was botched, but then the vaccine rollout was really strong. Uh, I think stuff like that combined with longer-term projects on infrastructure, on human capital, all of these things that I think can, can serve to boost trust in the government in the okay. longer term. Uh, probably the last issue that I would love to talk is about uh, uh, pluralistic societies' difficulties in coming together. Um, I mean, polarization in our in our societies. Uh, there is very, very less agreement or consensus or on uh, some of the fundamental issues that may constitute our democracies or our free societies. Uh, um, so you do not talk about uh, pluralism in the book and the challenge towards uh, governance of very pluralistic societies. But if I may flag another authoritarian state which presents, uh, I mean, a model of pluralism is uh, United Arab Emirates, UAE, mm -hmm. the, 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 and the interfaith kind of dialogue that they have encouraged uh, between Christians, Jews, and, and the Muslims. Uh, so it's an, uh, it's not a democracy, but uh, but in terms of religious uh, pluralism, uh, there are certain spaces. Um, how do you see that one? What are the good models uh, that we can learn uh, with respect to um, governing our pluralistic societies in a manner where we are accommodative enough and not uh, pushing towards homogenization? Sure. I mean, it's it's a fascinating question because part of me thinks that the answer to this question is less countries, more cities, where I think about London. I th I'm born and raised in New York City. I think about London. I think about New York. I think about these big cosmopolitan cities where people exist side by side. You have people from all around the world, all different ethnic backgrounds, all different religious backgrounds who live in relative harmony. And it, I think it is the question of, well, how do you expand the kind of tolerance of the Londons of the world to countries writ large. And I don't have I don't have a great answer because I think nobody actually models this incredibly well. And it's one of those reasons why when you look at polls around the world of would-be migrants, people across the developing world who are saying, well I want I want to immigrate immigrate somewhere, why the United States is still number one. Where uh, despite you know, the Trump administration, despite other concerns, despite you know hate crimes against Jews and Asians and everyone, uh, I think there is this notion of the United States still being a little bit ahead of the curve as being a multi-ethnic society, and I think it is different from the Frances of the world, obviously, where you know you everyone can become French, but you kind of have to do it in a very set mm -hmm. way. 
where, you know, if you're if you're Jewish, as I am, you know, you can't wear your yarmulke in school. You know, you have to be French, but everyone kind of looks and acts in a similar way. Whereas, of course, the United States, it's the opposite, where you can look any you can look any way, dress any way and still be American. Uh, and I think it is thinking about, well, how do we make sure that we are holding ourselves up as the model and actually being the model that the world wants us to be? And I think this is that this is a really American question because people expect more from us than they expect from any other developed democracy on this, where I think there is a, a sense of around the developing world, people still expect France to be a little a little tense on ethnic and racial issues. I think people do not expect the Englands of the world to necessarily be so progressive on this, where there is an expectation of America being better. Uh, and I, I don't have a great solution, honestly, on how to, on how to solve these problems. I would just say that Having a multi-ethnic democracy is a unique thing in the course of human history. It is something worth fighting for. We are better sure. off for having a multi-ethnic, diverse, pluralistic society. And it is one of those things of basically encouraging people to kind of act in line with their better their better judgment, their better angels, and not to give in to the temptations of, well, this country you know, needs to only serve my little clique. And I think people feel that way when they feel economically insecure. And I don't mean to say, you know, the only reason people vote for illiberal ethnic nationalists is because of economics. Certainly there, there are, there's some 20, maybe 20-ish percent of societies that are clearly minded on these ethnic issues. And I think polls show that in the United States, you know, 20, 25 percent of people, maybe that's a high number, are kind of against what we would describe as a pluralistic <coughs> multi-ethnic society. But most people, are in favor. And I think that's something I want to say over and over again is even if there are these, these, these disputes over, well, how many immigrants should we take or, you know, where should we resettle immigrants or, you know, what's the place of Native American history in our public schools? There is broad agreement on this notion of we are better off as a diverse society. And I think we just need to remember that and need to continue working that and continue to make that clear. Sure. Thank you so much. I think with that, we come to the end. Um, truly grateful for your time, but uh, would love to give you the last opportunity if you have anything to share with the audience. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, thanks for having me on and thanks everyone for listening. I think the big thing I would just leave everyone on is I know the United States, United Kingdom, whatnot, there is this pessimism about our democracies aren't functioning that, well, maybe you should just tune out and stop voting and just kind of sit at home and say, let me focus on my own personal and professional life. I would just urge people to stay involved, to continue voting, run for local office, whatever. I think just staying involved in voting is the basic minimum of having a functional democracy because if fewer and fewer people vote, I think politicians will have even less of an idea of what those people, what our people need. And if you don't know what people need, you're not going to be able to deliver for them and it will fuel this mistrust. So just at the baseline, voting and staying involved is key, I think, to worsening this crisis of trust we have. At the thank you. And with that encouraging note, I think uh, we come to the end. But uh, thank you to uh, thanks to you for your time and thanks to our listeners for listening to this episode. And I encourage everyone, if you like this episode and the other episodes, please make sure to subscribe and share it with your friends on your social media circles. We'll get back to you next month with a new episode. Thank you so much.